Hey, welcome to an extra episode of UCU Campus Chats. My name is Kim Zwitserloot. I'm one of the lecturers at UCU. I teach economics. I'm also one of the tutors. Um, in the previous episode, I said it would be the last one for the summer, but clearly that isn't the case. Uh, so you can see this is an extra bonus episode. And I'm here today with Mark Baldwin. Mark, could you maybe shortly introduce yourself? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, and I'm glad that there was uh, time left to be involved in this lovely initiative. Um, yeah, my name's Mark Baldwin. I'm, uh, I'm British and have been living in the Netherlands for, uh, um, yeah, nearly, uh, well, around about 14 years now. And I'm, um, I have got a kind of a broad role at UCU. Most people know me as the student life officer, um, but I'm also responsible for the Future Center. Uh, I'm responsible for some uh, uh, networks throughout the country for people in my kind of role in guidance, but also in uh, futures orientation. And I, I try to support the tutor team with their work. I try to support the management team with their work. Um, and if there are matters of, uh, let's say, uh, personal guidance or quality of experience, um, then I'm also keen to be involved in that. Yeah, because you mentioned you're a student life officer. What exactly does a student life officer do? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it, <laughs> the title <laughs> the title is almost a distraction. Uh, what I what I tend to uh, describe it as is a counselor, actually, uh, because the role over the years has um, kind of crystallized into something much more like counseling than the broader aspects of student life. And, and especially because what I notice is that students are so brilliantly in charge of their own lives uh, for the most part. And of course, our student representatives do a brilliant job year after year in making most of the uh, 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 central aspects of student life happen and happen well that the, the best contribution I can make are when there are sort of wobbly aspects to that, when things might look like they might be going uh, wrong or diff with difficulty. So a, a counsellor is actually a better description for what I do under that heading than student life officer. Um, mm. uh, so that, I mean, and on the other hand, sometimes I have to represent the organisation back to the students. Yeah. So the students may come with inquiries or uh, questions. So I then have to, uh, it's almost then like, I feel like a university life officer so that I'm presenting institutional perspectives back to the students. Yeah. So in that regard, uh, uh, it's a kind of a, an intermediary role. Um, and it really depends on what walks through the door and which inquiries come my way. So I have to be quite versatile in how I interpret the role. Uh, yeah. But counselling is probably a bit closer to the mark than student life officer these days. Yeah, but that's very different from what you started out because you started out studying art history, right? Correct. In Manchester. And why did you choose to study art history back then? Oh, uh, uh, art history, it felt like, and if I look back, it still was absolutely the right choice for me at that moment. I was, I still really am very close to the subject and, and adore anything artistic and cultural. And at that point, um, when I was 18, actually, uh, when I left school, I didn't go straight into university. I, I was working in a gallery, having developed my own interest in making art and um, was interested in the, in cultural management and uh so i worked in a gallery for a year um, as a an assistant to an exhibitions officer 
and that brought me really close to the subject. Um, so I then decided that history of art was going to be the right subject to explore for three years. Um, and I, it's still it's still very close to my heart. Although when I look back, I realise that what I was doing then was following an impulse. Yeah. It was nothing. It was nothing really more thought through than that. Uh, so I think I responded to something that intuitively felt interesting and right and full of potential. Yeah. So that's that's where it took me. Okay, and that's often the right path as well. I would say it's fun because I was talking with Hugo uh, de Boer in the previous yeah. episode, and he mentioned a similar thing that it was more about following your gut and following your curiosity than anything else. Because what was your topic within art history? Is there a particular time period or school that you um, really focus on or enjoy? Well, the, the structure of the curriculum was such that you, you had a broad foundation to begin with and then you became a little bit more specialised as you went through. Um, and then, I mean, uh, well, my thesis concentrated on uh, what is meant by ownership of art and what, what motivates people to own and to purchase mm -hmm. and to buy, and how does that uh, relate to national ideas of ownership, especially disputed ownership. And, they, um, and I gave uh, quite a bit of focus to the uh, Elgin marbles, which were uh, plundered from uh, the Parthenon in Greece. And forever there has been the, the debate as to whether these are rightfully uh, the property of the British nation or the, the Greek nation, and that's become politicized. So that became a, a a very interesting topic for me is how do we define uh, and how do we legitimize ownership of art not yeah. just individual purchases but also ideas of national ownership and funnily enough that 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 uh, topic comes back and back when we look at what has been plundered what what can be returned the repatriation of art and the cases made for that which I found really I still really do find that fascinating now yeah and it, it's funny to see it's becoming a bigger part of like the mainstream discussion as well. I mean, there's a scene in the movie Black Panther that is actually about that as well. And obviously the British Museum in London, there's a lot of stuff there that you could have that discussion about. Yeah, yeah, um, more or less any museum, yeah. Yeah, but you didn't continue with that when you graduated. You were in a very no. different Well, when I, gra I mean, after I graduated, I, I did something which I noticed a lot of our students really think about as well and some of them go on to do and that is to um completely diversify uh i would um i gave quite a lot of intense focus to my study years not just in study by the way but i really made the entire town of manchester my uh kind of um learning arena and i can say more about that in a minute because that was brilliant fun but i i did choose deliberately to um put that put that in the background for a while so then I went and did a lot of forestry work. I got really involved in um, the, the management of uh, trees, um, uh, small forest areas uh, on private estates, as well as in public grounds. Uh, and I also did a lot of restoration of old buildings with uh, the same guy that I was a tree surgeon with, uh, which was a lovely kind of break actually from the intensity of intellectual focus. Um, so that, that was what I did straight away. So that's nothing to do with history of art and nothing to do with counselling, um, but everything to do with balance. Um, and while I was doing that, I thought, well, hang on, I, I, I can't really, you know, see a future in this because it was really a temporary thing. Um, so my, my uh, thoughts were to reflect on what had gone well and not well in my own study experience and see what could be uh, done about that. And I noticed that 
my own study experience in Manchester was missing some kind of contact with the world of work, particularly museums, galleries, cultural uh, management. So I wrote a proposal to the university where I studied that there should be some changes made to how the study program is done and that, um, and, and that I should be employed to make those changes. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, they said yes. Um, so that worked out and I went back for three years to be a development officer at the university, developing internship programs, yeah. um, employability initiatives, which brought art history students uh, into contact with collections in the museums and galleries in the northwest of England. Oh, nice. And yeah, it was brilliant. And then I also set up um, some uh, art groups uh, that were practical artists, art historians, uh, people who wanted to exhibit, people who wanted to curate. Um, people who offered their spaces uh, legally and illegally uh, for kind of, uh, let's say, underground exhibitions for artists that were not so mainstream. Uh, And it was brilliant fun. So that, I mean, in a way, that brought me into the world of um, working with people who wanted to do things differently. Mm -hmm. And from there, there were, you know, how do people transition out of university into the world of work? Yeah. So then I started to learn about transitions and how to guide people in that respect. Yeah. Um, and then I got employed by the university's career service to think more and to guide more uh, transitioning young adults into the world of work or further study. So over the over the years, I learned a lot about how young adults approach uh, difficult uh, phases in their life and what kinds of guidance might be important in that, um, yeah. especially if there was deep struggle involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got loads of training and loads of um, practical experience in this uh, from the counselling service at Manchester, the career service at Manchester. And then I started to diversify further as well and think about sports mentoring. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and these experiences kind of clustered in a way so that um, after a while I became, um, what's the word? I mean, just very drawn to this age uh, range, yeah. uh, young adulthood. I found it, I still do, I find it utterly fascinating the sorts of transitions that we go through yeah. and how uh, we can be helped in that. And because you had a little bit of a detour because before you got to UCU, because uh, you can clearly see the links between the work you did at Manchester University and at UCU. But then there was a stop at the British Council in between. Uh, and I think that's also when you made the move from the UK to the Netherlands, right? Uh, just before that, actually, yeah, I worked for an education company in Amsterdam. Uh, mm-hmm. It was actually a Canadian company uh, that offered online uh, uh, business MBA. administration programs. So I was a program manager there, and that was my reason for coming to um, the Netherlands. Well, actually, my my wife was the reason, but that was the first job I had. And then, indeed, uh, for a slightly longer period, I was at the British Council in uh, in Amsterdam, indeed. And then, at some point, you realize I actually want to go back to that university setting or how did that work? Because I know that several UCU employees worked with you already when you were still at the British Council, right? Yeah, uh, I mean, the British, it was brilliant there, really, really interesting. Uh, And it had to do with uh, some educational work, but more about policy. um, And of course, cultural relations is about um, the the non-political kind of softer end of how countries can understand each other and develop good uh, partnerships. And I was responsible for how Britain was doing that with uh, not just uh, the Netherlands, but also Belgium and and, uh, Luxembourg, the Benelux countries. Uh, And so some of the projects that we ran had were really about um, 
well, strangely enough, some of it was about security and intelligence. Um, and some of it was to do with, so that was really about radicalization. And that was a big uh, topic for many of our countries at that point. And that was uh, going back to, um, yeah, uh, it's about sort of 12 years ago that that became a high point in some of those projects. But um, then part of the educational work that the British Council did brought me into contact with uh, actually Bas uh, de Fisa, yeah. uh, uh, Mary Bouquet, mm-hmm. uh, Rob van der Vaart. Uh, yeah. These are some names that those of us who have been around here for a while might remember, the previous dean, Rob van der Vaart. Yeah. Um, and actually Mary Bouquet invited me to the campus to talk about uh, how the British Council could support some of her own internship projects, yeah. which I found really impressive what she was doing. Yes, it and, is. Uh, and then, uh, well, equal to that, stepping onto the campus was like a breath of fresh air from having worked in the centre of Amsterdam. Uh, and then I started learning more about liberal arts and sciences, particularly about the philosophy at UCU, uh, what the people who worked here were telling me about what the college was trying to, trying to achieve. And then I thought, it's brilliant at the British Council working at policy level because it was very, you know, I felt like I could truly have influence at that level. And it was rather, you know, you could flatter yourself by thinking, gosh, yes, I'm influencing national policy here. But at the same time, you lose a lot of on the ground contact. And yeah. it feels like rather indirect work that you're doing. And then I heard what was going on at UCU and I thought that sounds like much more on the ground, person to person impact and and well fun that you can have yeah so then um uh, by that time i had accumulated a lot more experience in project management in counseling in guidance um in um all sorts of things so i wrote to the previous dean to say look um uh here i am uh, your college is doing brilliant things if we yeah. could ever mean something to one another yeah. i'd be interested and then uh, he said, oh, sounds great, but there's nothing going on right now for you. Yeah. So thanks for your interest. And three months later, I was on holiday in, uh, in the Alps in France. Literally, I was in, in the snow, in the mountains. Uh, I got a phone call. My, I had reception. I got a phone <laughs> call from the then managing director who said, why don't you try applying for this uh, position yeah. that's just come up? And that was the student life officer back then. Yeah, there you go. And it feels almost like a full circle back to Manchester to some degree. And because you mentioned earlier indeed that the transitions that people go through between the ages of say 17 and 25, something like that. Um, What are sort of like the commonalities that you see there? What are a lot of the struggles that people experience, the transitions that they experience? Well, The strange thing is that I find it harder to talk about the commonalities than than how individuals approach things because yes there are some there are some features of adolescence or or the transitions from youth into young adulthood which might be that you know there is there is chaos Mm -hmm. uh, there is a lack of clarity with uh, oneself um, there's a new relationship with the world around you yeah. Uh, there are questions of responsibility, new responsibilities and what that does to your sense of uh, capacity and capability yeah. to meet those responsibilities. Uh, you're, you're forming a new version of yourself in your new environment a lot of the time. There's a sort of a letting go of what you used to be and what you used to have and an acclimatization to what is ahead. 
And some of those transitions in life come at the same time as yeah. a change of environment, of course. Yeah. Typically, you're moving out of high school into a, a new setting, uh, away from home, into an independent life, sometimes from one country to another, or certainly in between cities. So those transitions, you could say, are rather common, at least to the, the profile that we work with. Yeah. Um, and then it gets really interesting when you see how individuals tackle that and you see the massive scope of uh, factors that play in to how someone uh, deals with unfamiliarity yeah. or, or deals with uh, uh, the notion of letting go yeah. or deals with the notion of taking new responsibilities, uh, unbearable so as they sometimes might be. Yeah. But then those individual factors that come into play, uh, which are often to do with um, your upbringing environment, your, mm -hmm. your exposure to new things while you were young, uh, what you may have encountered uh, in, in terms of guidance whilst at school. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's a little bit of a DNA question as well, how you are predisposed to the world around you. Then it gets really fascinating. And that, that's, they're the sorts of conversations I love to get into at UCU. Yeah. Because can you, um, without identifying anyone, of course, can you think of a particular person that really impressed you with the way they handled um, the challenging the challenges they were faced with yeah I have to be really honest uh, it happens uh, maybe it's a bit um, you know cliche if I say that happens daily but but several times a week I'm truly astonished and I, I wouldn't just say this I really am truly astonished by what um, these young adults are capable of doing um, mm -hmm. so yes I am deeply impressed on a very regular basis and for example um, uh, stories when people arrive at UCU having had difficulties in high school, yeah. for example, with uh, presenting, you know, they, they may have um, over the years built up a kind of a, an anxiety or almost a resistance uh, to the idea of being in front of people and speaking freely. Yeah. And that has caused them such deep anguish that it has become embedded almost in who they are. And they yeah. identify very strongly with the idea of not being able to do it because yeah. that is how their experience has shaped them. Yeah. Uh, and for some, uh, they truly are, let's say, I, I won't say stuck there because that sounds belittling, but they are really, um, they find it hard to move out of that mindset. And others, when there's just a little opening to new influences, from tutors, teachers, from me, from peers, they realize, okay, I'm, I'm not at that high school setting anymore. I yeah. am in a slightly different life phase. And sometimes they'll say, okay, well, I am open to trying this in new ways. And slowly, slowly, they may then uh, have a go at presenting uh, their topics in class, firstly, sometimes to smaller numbers and then to greater numbers, and then eventually to the class as a whole. And that happened, in fact, it's happened a few times, but that was one of the most recent examples. It was um, a, a young lady, I think she graduated last year, who, um, who showed the most uh, capacity for adaption, uh, adaptation. And so yeah. she, she came from a place of deep, deep anxiety with presenting to, by the time she graduated, a very, uh, let's say, easy uh, capacity to do that same thing. Yeah. And, uh, I was impressed with her openness to influence and how she could, she was ready to accept new ways of doing things. Yeah. So I think that's indeed, it requires a lot of flexibility. I think, especially in your first year at UCU, because so many things are changing at the same time. Um, but to some degree, you sort of have to roll with it. 
I usually tell my tutees yeah. as well in one of the first meetings I have with them, like that your first year is going to be intense and there will be moments where you feel that you're drowning. Um, and allow yourself to feel that and know that you will come above water again at some point. Because yeah. it's a lot. It's so many changes at the same time and you're not going to have a handle on this for a while. Also because yeah. your support system is changing, your friends are changing, um, your family suddenly further away. It, it's really impressive to see how they uh, how they develop so much within the first year indeed. That's right. And, and one of the strategies that I, I like seeing amongst colleagues and that I think helps you see you um, do well is um, that some of those uh, young adults ought to be left alone in their struggles mm -hmm. uh, so that they have a go first at coming up with their own strategies to, to, to face the struggles. And of course, that, that doesn't hold true for struggles which are so deeply fundamental that we can talk about them as actual health issues. But many of the struggles that we're presented with, are they, they belong in a sense with that life phase. And we ought to respect our students enough uh, to say, well, in the first instance, we're going to recognize you as, um, first off, completely capable of tackling these struggles, even independently through a bit of trial and error, having a bit of faith in yourself and seeing how that goes. And uh, what I'm happy about is that we do not quickly try to kind of smother uh, these young adults with an overload of support when in fact um, they're trying to empower themselves and yeah. they're trying to grow and trying to uh, experiment with new ways of being. And, and I, I love to see that happen as um, autonomously as possible without trying to steer or overly, you know, uh, overload them with support because yeah. that can, in the end, uh, belittle or even patronize yeah. those very same people who are trying to flourish and be their own uh, best version of themselves on their own terms. Yeah, because it can also be such a experience of feeling empowered by indeed and, and opportunities by going to university, starting again, rebuilding who you are and to some degree yeah. you want people to perceive you. Um, that can be a, a period of feeling extremely empowered as well. Right. Um, but in order to have that feeling, you do have need to have the feeling to some degree that you're doing it yourself. Right. Yeah, you that's true. Agency, I guess. Yeah, that would be the word. Okay. Because um, you've started in the, you mentioned already, there are a couple of national networks uh, that you're involved in. And you're actually the founder of a network of university college guidance counselors at university colleges in the Netherlands. That comprises of people who are in similar positions to you at other university colleges, so the student life officers, as well as the tutors. And then there's a meeting, I think, about twice a year. Can you tell a little bit more about the network, about what the goal is, what that looks yeah. like? Yeah, that's the University College Guidance Network. Mm -hmm. And um, currently, um, the members, uh, actually, they just uh, tipped over the 100 mark uh, this summer. Um, and it's, it's a network, as you say, of all of the uh, university colleges here in the Netherlands who teach liberal arts and sciences. Um, and it's for people in any kind of guidance role. So typically that would be counsellors, uh, student life officers, uh, tutors, uh, but also senior tutors and uh, other teachers, exchange officers, uh, alumni officers, anyone who comes into regular contact with students and who notices that... Um, you know, we have a we have a, a role to play in how they can make the best university experience for themselves. And when I first picked up the job here in in uh, at UCU, I noticed that uh, there was no network that could help us uh, 
train each other, coach each other, share best practice, uh, share deep worries and concerns, mm -hmm. uh, swap strategies. So I actually physically did a round of all of those universities and met with the, the deans and the uh, closest equivalent of my role um, and proposed this network. And you know, I was I was thrilled, but perhaps not surprised that everybody was saying, "Well, well, yes, yeah, we really should be getting together." <laughs> and actually, we really do miss this. Yeah. So it wasn't that hard for me to then to say, "Okay, well, let's let's become a network." And very quickly we found that we had some shared uh, um, priorities and we could easily form an agenda. So the, the habit now is that twice a year we come together for an entire day for training and development and networking. Uh, so we, we pick topics that are of concern to all of us. Um, we train each other, but we also bring in external trainers. For example, from the 113 Academy, that's the suicide helpline, from uh, the transgender network in the Netherlands um, who help people with, uh, who are in, uh, at any point affected by transgender thoughts or actions, and, um, and others. So, so th that, that helps us overcome the problem of there is no guidebook to be a student life officer. So, you know, we are actually creating our own and making sure that we have the skills in place to deal with what comes our way, but also to anticipate a little bit yeah. and recognize patterns that exist in young adulthood and, and against the backdrop of the Netherlands particularly, uh, but also society where, you know, competition seems to be increasing. Yeah. Uh, there is um, a feeling less and less of stability in not just in a political sense, but also in how we can forecast yeah. uh, how society might be moving. Uh, there are challenges that come out of uh, ecology, uh, of course, virus concerns. How do we continue existing as colleges with our young adults against that backdrop? Yeah. So uh, that's how the network has evolved. Yeah, and I always really appreciate these meetings to be able to meet people who are in other guidance positions at other colleges and share experiences, see if we can help each other out. Absolutely. Yeah, you're one of the more uh, active members, Kim. I appreciate when you when you show up because it really I mean, it, those those meetings depend upon people really getting into the discussions, really challenging one another <laughs> and bringing each other further. And uh, you're a, you're a real master in that. <laughs> I have a hard time avoiding discussions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I always really appreciate them also indeed to get the training in terms of uh, the suicide prevention and, and the transgender network meeting was very impressive as well. Uh, I think a number of years ago we had someone with autism as well. Yes, there was an organization in Zeeland that trained us in how to guide people who were on the uh, autism spectrum. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot happening behind the scenes that students may indeed not be aware of. Right. That, that, that awareness is indeed there. Um, next to that, you've also started all kinds of activities at UCU that have to do more with movement with going outdoors uh, and thinking of the walks that you've implemented in the last uh, couple of months. What has that experience been like for you? Oh, uh, that, I have to say that's been one of the most fulfilling parts of my role uh, since I started it. Uh, in fact, I don't know why I didn't do it earlier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but my own, I mean, my, I guess my own personality and background has been shaped a little bit by um, uh, outdoor stuff uh, and um, I noticed that in order to kind of work well and in order to function well uh, I need a lot of movement um, I need contact with my natural environment and of course I'm not alone this is this is true of so many people 
Um, and then I look at the environment of uh, a college. And it's, of course, people choose for the intensity. Uh, and, you know, our teaching uh, style and our learning style is so committed uh, mm -hmm. that it can very easily become all consuming. So I yeah. did notice that I keep on meeting students for whom uh, movement, uh, nature, uh, that kind of outdoor activity was really important to them before they came to university and suddenly it's ground to a halt. And I found that a massive pity for the quality of their uh, life, their learning and their growth. So I thought, well, let's play with this idea and, and just do the simple stuff. Uh, I, know, I know the students themselves are busy with this as well in some of their brilliantly organized activity. But I thought if we give institutional partnership, then it, it also kind of has the effect of endorsing uh, I won't use the word permitting because no one needs permission to walk, but uh, really endorsing the idea of outside time. Yeah. And uh, so I think you might be referring to the, the project You See More, uh, which is a slight play on words, but it was really an attempt to say, you know, a few times a year, let's jump on a bus together and let's go to one of our nearby national parks yeah. and uh, get into the forest or get on the water, go rowing, kayaking, hiking, climbing, and, and see what that does to how we interact, how we counterbalance uh, the intensity of our studies, what it does with us for our physiology and our health. Um, even the quality of our silences when we walk together have something different than the silences you might have um, in a room inside. And um, the feedback has been uniformly good. And what I notice, uh, in the students and I've surveyed them as well who take part is that they can actually come back to campus to resume the intensity of their studies much more effectively uh, having had that kind of um, it's not just a break it's not just a kind of downtime it's something active that they're doing it's yeah. not a switching off it's a switching on yeah um, so I, I personally believe in that very strongly for myself and I recognize it in so many of the people I meet at UCU and now that we've experimented with it institutionally, I noticed that it's it's kind of embedded now, um, and it's it's attracted attention also from a, a European uh, platform which promotes uh, the health benefits of being outside, particularly for young adults in intensive study programs. And they attended one of the uh, guidance network meetings that I ran in The Hague recently. Um, so I noticed that. Uh, it's a bit of a no-brainer when you think of it on a basic level, like being outside and going hiking is good. Yeah. But then it gets more interesting when you make that part of how your college functions. Yeah. So that this becomes an expectation of your young adults that, you know, we are not asked only to keep ourselves behind a computer, sitting down all the way through the day, all the way through the night and do it again the next day. Yeah. But as an institution, we say, no, there is more. There yeah. is more to it than that. Not just to sort of be doing less of your work, but to increase the quality of your work when you are doing it. Yeah. So there's all kinds of reasons to get into that. Uh, but yeah, that, that's how I introduced it, introduced it to uh, the work that I do. Yeah. So what has it been like for you then in the last couple of months? Because obviously right now with Corona, we're all spending a lot more time behind our computers. Um, have you been able to get that exercise? Have you consciously scheduled time to, to do that? Um, yeah, it's part of my, uh, I don't have to consciously schedule it because I think my body just tells me. Ah, yes. <laughs> you know? Listen to your body, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and sometimes that has to do with, I, I mean, it's, it's different, isn't it, when you're 
trying to go for a run, trying to go for a walk. Uh, and you would normally do that without thinking who you have to go past. Yeah. But now you have to think about the density of yeah. uh, the, how many other people are in the park or whatever. But this is the, the great thing about being in the Netherlands right now is our, our uh, waterways. Yeah. And uh, I feel very fortunate in, in having, you know, found myself a cheap uh, uh, kayak uh, because now I can just put the kayak on the water and take off. Yeah. Uh, and those of us who don't have a kayak can find one to rent or uh, go very, very basic and just get the, anything that basically floats yeah. or even get in the water and swim. And the quality of the water in the Netherlands is so good. And, the, uh, and it reaches so far into the countryside that even yeah. if you're in a town, within a day, you can be completely remote, uh, isolated from other people, physically active, uh, very close to our natural environment. Uh, take some great photos, if you like, and show other people, you know, that this is a good thing, but, but come back changed. Yeah. So for me, in, in the corona times, I did notice I had, uh, I got weird little physiological effects from sitting here in my yeah. attic room on a yeah. desk that was not my work desk on a on a chair that was not a work chair uh, trying to help my kids which so i had to twist my body to look in multiple directions all at the same time and then my eyes started hurting from the screen time yeah. so i took notice of that physiological discomfort and thought well all right uh, it is spring it is summer uh, it's okay just to go walking uh, for half an hour every day uh, yeah. just as a kind of restorative thing really yeah exactly uh, but I, I wouldn't want uh, outside time to be only remedial. No. It's not like, you know, we have to feel bad and then nature gives us a nice, you know, kind of uh, solve for that. Yeah. I don't think that's a relationship we ought to have with the, our natural environment. It's more of a, um, well, there, there was a, um, there's someone who works at Capilano University in Vancouver, uh, who also is a, a, a quite a high profile mountain biker. And he's put forward a very nice notion of landfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is that we use our outdoor environment not as as, as a remedy for our own ills uh, but we're actually building a relationship with it so that sometimes yeah. we actually choose not to go to certain areas yeah. because that there will be a fragile ecosystem there or yeah. um, you know birds are uh, nesting or uh, there is a reintroduction of a plant species going on there so sometimes we have to choose not to go to our favorite natural areas because even though we might need it it doesn't need us so I love that what I hope to do through UC more as well is to show uh, our students something of the national parks that might inspire their interest in why do we why do we even have yeah. national parks how are these waterways maintained what does this yeah. forest mean historically so then we get this kind of relationship with the natural environment which isn't just kind of I'm not doing so well please pick me up and get me out of this hole yeah uh, it's more kind of what is the give and take that can happen mm. between humans and their environment that's what i really want in the long run it's a beautiful idea what i also love about it is that it's um it doesn't have a focus on usefulness or purpose because one of the things i notice in myself especially in the middle of the semester is that life can get really hectic and busy and then it can be hard to make sure that you also do stuff just for the sake of it that yeah. you're not thinking about i'm doing this because i'm going to get this out of it it's more like hey i feel like doing this there's something about this that excites me right yeah indeed that's all and i find yeah. that very important for our students as well but it, it's, it's it's hard to get that time in for uh, sure you mentioned that as well indeed that listen to your body and you know at one point you feel okay i want to do this do it 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's easy to think of our working environment and our study environment as uh, uh, non-permeable. Uh, but in fact, we are in charge of when we get up and when we walk out and take a break and get some air and go and look at things that we need to look at in new ways, be that uh, the changing seasons, the changing environment. And what can what can we take from that? And, and often I notice that when I hope that that happens automatically and I see that it doesn't, I think we have an institutional role to play, yeah. which is to say, okay, well, we, we will at least trigger it. We will, uh, you know, I'll send out a message, I'll book a bus, I'll take people out. And I hope that the habit is then taken up. Yeah. And I know that um, some of our student groups have been trying to inspire exactly the same thing, which I truly respect. So, I mean, I'm optimistic. I think this will hopefully become part of what UCU stands for. It's not just the inside bit, but the outside bit too. Okay. So final question then, related a little bit to this. If you could give one piece of advice to UCU students out there with all the unclarity about what's going to happen in the next year, what would it be? Oh, uh, Strangely, in a role like mine, uh, where I tend to give quite some guidance, I've never been good at taking advice myself, which is a bit of a paradox. <laughs> uh, maybe that shows, I don't know. Uh, I, find that, I find that tricky, but um, maybe just humility, I guess. Uh, try, to, try to stay humble uh, because we're all working really hard and we, we, we know that we can have a good effect on the society around us. We know that we've got our intelligence that we can bring to certain problems. We know that we respect each other and hold each other in very high esteem. So there is a temptation, I think, in any community like that yeah. to kind of accidentally big ourselves up. Um, and we ought to be proud, but we ought not to um, uh, forget our humility. Uh, yeah. And that is to say, uh, when we understand the extent of our ignorance, uh, then we then we have the chance of learning something worthwhile and and uh, that has to do I think with uh, recognizing your strengths but also recognizing your your multiple weaknesses yeah. and being open with them and, and not trying to hide them away or cover them up yeah. but just by being humble enough and strong enough to say I'm not a finished uh, work yeah. I'm a work in progress and there's so much more to learn yeah okay thank you so much for your time Thank you. And uh, I hope to see you in person again. Soon, oh, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I can't wait for that. And also to see the, the new cohort coming in and the returning yeah. students. I can't wait for all of that. So fingers crossed that we get through this whole thing uh, safe and well. Yeah, same here. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks, Kim. Bye. Yeah, see you. Bye-bye.